Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. The Win series in 2021 was the story of a specific group of change makers, the Women's Empowerment Network, a group of women in a very white, male-led organization. When I recorded the first episode of the series, I said that I'm an ally to other groups working on equity issues. I sent it off to my editor, and they replied with this correction. You can try or do your best to be an ally. It's not your place to call yourself an ally. Minority and disenfranchised groups must be the one to make that determination. So I could get that email and be like, wait, that's not fair. I feel like I am an ally. Or I can make one little change to make what I'm saying more accurate and more respectful to marginalized groups. That's the power of asking for feedback, someone being willing to give it, and doing your best to recognize that you are not a perfect person who holds all the perspectives of all humans within your own brain. Rain keeps the world moving. It's a heavenly blessing. There's no need to complain or to say. So what does this word ally even mean? The story of the Women's Empowerment Network offered a little insight into how change is made, what works and perhaps what doesn't. But none of the folks I interviewed are actual experts on this topic. They were trying to speak up and to stand up for each other the best way they knew how, like many of us. So today you get to meet someone who actually knows something about how to create inclusive cultures, how to be an ally, and the best ways to speak up. To get down to business, first, we have to take off our hoops. I'm imitating you with that motion you're doing because I'm like, oh, those can go. go. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, oh, that's a good move. I like that. Let me do that. Yeah, like all that. Yeah, I think I gave those up actually this year. I was like, yeah, you don't even see me from here. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, you don't need to. I'm not doing that anymore. So, Okay, bras and hoops off. You too, pause here and remove anything else that's uncomfortable. Settle in to meet Amber. She grew up in Detroit, and when we talked, she was in the process of moving to the city that she feels most at home, Atlanta. She's an inclusion and diversity consultant who works with a lot of different companies. Well, I work with mostly corporations, so that was a good generalization. Most of the clients I have are well-known brands. I work with a lot of retailers. I also have quite a bit of tech now. And then there's a mix of like a couple other like financial industry people and, you know, a few other things, too. Amber has degrees in psychology and organizational leadership, so she uses her education and experience in her consulting work. But part of what makes her most effective is her ability to create shared experiences. I think that you can feel her passion and get to know her better in this one little example. I was to kind of come in and like warm the group up because they were doing this storytelling themed video. The intent was like, We're bringing all these folks in. They don't know each other. Can you just like do something to get everyone like a little bit vulnerable enough to like bring this to life? And so I was like, sure, like we can do that. And so we go around about what we think it's going to be. And, you know, I build out this activity and um, oh my gosh, this room full of like 
for lack of a better word, like I think these people would kind of be the misfits, right? Like it was people who had, you know, some really unique disabilities, people who just have really unique interests or just have really, you know, unique appearances, like, you know, fun colored hair or like, you know, gauge piercings and like, you know, just things that like, I think out in like the quote unquote business world would be received like, what's happening here, right? And this activity made these folks feel so seen. Like everybody in that room cried that day. I mean, there was just this overwhelming outpouring of like, I feel seen. I feel like I can show up better. And I'm usually the one that feels attacked and victimized by this whole idea of inclusion. I'm the one that feels like I don't fit in, belong, or am heard. And here I am in this situation, not only feeling like I'm seen and heard, but also understanding how I can do better to see and hear other folks. I mean, that whole experience was just, it was mind blowing. It was incredible. And I cried about it for like weeks. Like I was like, I can't believe I did this. <laughs> like, it was so good. Like I, you know, when the video was finally done, you know, cause we ended up having, you know, the, there was this recording and the way they put it together. And it was just, I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal piece of work. And that was probably the, the most impactful real time. Oh, wow like I do something different and it's valuable and like undeniably great. What was your story that you shared? <sighs> My story. So the way that it was an activity where I essentially asked people to kind of like identify what, how would you describe yourself? Like what are the 10 things you'd use to describe yourself? And then I asked them to pick the one thing that feels the most like either personal or like just the most impactful or the most present in that moment. And then I asked everyone to pair up with someone and tell the person next to them why they chose it. And so, I mean, you have really personal things. And so I didn't participate in that part of the activity from a numbers standpoint and also like who wants to pair up with the teacher, right? right so yeah. <laughs> that part I, I didn't really pick, you know, participate in, but I was a part of like the overall video where they, asked tell me what you know your word would have been and why and um I think the word I chose was woman because you know for me I bounce wildly between struggling with being a woman because of patriarchy <laughs> um and struggling with being black because I mean racism so it's like <laughs> one or the other is on my nerve, you know, kind of every day, you know? So it's like, I think I chose woman and I believe the reason I gave was just that, like, you know, being a woman for me is something I don't get to escape from because of the way that we position ourselves around patriarchy, the way women uphold it, the way men are completely unaware of it. So I think I chose woman that day and just kind of gave a brief synopsis of like why patriarchy is awful <laughs> and why <laughs> I am sick of having to live under it, but I'm still here, you know, and trying to push back against it and not be a participant myself the best ways that I can. And they brought the story to life. Like the, the whole idea was that we are not just one thing and look at what happens when people just see you through the lens of being just one thing. And so we should not operate that way. When an organization reaches out for Amber's expertise, 
she doesn't necessarily give them what they ask for. The thing that I get asked for the most often is not the thing anybody needs. <laughs> and so what most people call me for, well, lately it's two things. So the thing I get called for prior to May of last year, um, before George Floyd, was unconscious bias training. And I'm like, that's not what you need. You don't need unconscious bias training. I can explain unconscious bias to you in 15 minutes. But that was the buzz language. And so I often sold things under the guise of unconscious bias so that I could get you all the other stuff you really need. <laughs> and so now the predominant ask is anti-racism training. And I have to tell people, we don't teach people to be anti-racist because no one has gotten that down yet. If you go sign up for someone else's class, that they're telling you that they're going to teach you to be anti-racist, you should be forewarned that that is not a certifiable fact and you could very well be making some huge mistakes. So that is a thing we say no to, but we are willing to teach folks like what it is, why it's a conversation right now, how you work toward it. Amber's going to tell us what she does do and give us some basic terminology, like what even do we mean when we say diversity? She mentions her book, which we'll get to in just a little bit. What most organizations actually need is sort of what the book offers, a good base level knowledge of like the things that are impacting the way you show up in the workplace. So some of that is bias. Some of that is also, though, really knowing what diversity is. For example, people think diversity is everybody that's not white. And it's not. Diversity is everybody, like, actually. And so getting clear that, like, you know, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion, because we've been saying those two words together so long, they are almost synonymous. Getting people to understand that there are actual small behaviors that you can, you know, action on that will help bring, you know, some culture shifts to life so that people do feel a stronger sense of inclusion and can bring their identity to work and all of those things. And so it's me being strategic and thoughtful about what they need more than what they're asking for. I get people that call me and like, we need to do a session on microaggressions because they think they can like beat the microaggressions out of people. And I'm like, actually, that's not how that works. So let's talk about that. But let's talk about it around other things. So you understand equity, right? Because a microaggression is actually a diminishment of equity. So let's get clear about what that means. Let's also get clear about what you do when it happens. So you know how to speak up and push back. And you also know if you witness it, what to do. If you are a person who does it, what to do. So I take in all the trainings I do and all the teaching I do, period, whether it's training or conversation or whatever, because we do workshops now too, there's always this underlying intention of like, am I giving you something you can use, something you can action on? If you take one thing with you, I mean, I'm going to give you at least 10, but if we can take at least one with you that you can actively practice, right? So like one that often people choose to practice is guys, because people say guys all the time. And so oh, I'm usually like, it's not gender inclusive language. And so they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, it's not gender inclusive language. Like you're saying guys. And they're like, well, no, we, we use it to mean girls as well. And I'm like, so if I told you I went on a date with 14 guys yesterday, what would you say? And they're like, 
oh, that's a good point. Right. So it's not gender inclusive. Let's get that out. And people are like, oh my God, I say guys so much. Like, what do I do? People say guys all over the news. It's everywhere. And so that often ends up being the, oh, let me try to do better with that. Right. And so I want people to have that experience when they go through. And so a lot of times people ask for things, but that's not what they ultimately end up getting. I give them what they need versus what they ask for. (laughs) So, yeah. I'd like to begin with a fact. So that's how she approaches her organizational work. But she also just put out a book to help individuals create inclusion. And I want and need to hear all about it. It's called Allies and Advocates. It's basically about what it says. It's it's Allies and Advocates, how to create an inclusive culture. And what the book is really intended to do is to give people kind of a quick understanding of what allyship is, what advocacy is, and how to action on it. These are really popular buzzwords right now. We have politicians (laughs) saying allyship and advocacy and I don't think that we have a good working knowledge of what it means to bring those words to life and particularly not in this space and time where, you know, we are dealing with, you know, kind of a modern version of what happened in the 60s. And so it's important to me that if folks are going to discuss it, that they have at least some good framework for like, how do I make this happen? And that's what the book is intended to do alongside giving you like the tools and the language to be able to navigate some of these conversations that people tend to be really worried about. So how do I have the challenging conversation with my racist uncle, you know, or how do I, you know, push back on that leader that I'm concerned is not including me or, you know, maybe overlooking me because I'm the only woman or whatever. It's, it's aimed at trying to kind of address and arm people with the resources to navigate those kinds of discussions, whether you are the person that's doing the damage or the person that's on the receiving end of the damage because inclusion means we've got to figure out how to do all this stuff together and so that's basically what the book is it's an easy read it's digestible it's you know it's really simple language I try to break down as much as I can it's totally not all-encompassing because inclusion and equity are just huge topics but it is a good foundational okay I feel like I know what's going on here kind of book and she didn't write it for a specific group of people Um, I know a lot of people thought I was like, oh, this is for white people. I'm like, "Um, actually, (laughs) a lot of black people have read the book. A lot of brown people have read the book. A lot of queer people have read the book. And all of them have come to me and been like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said this. And so, no, it's for like people, not any particular group of folks. I think I just wanted something that felt consumable. <laughs> like I wanted it to not be intimidating. And I wanted something that like people could read and actually walk away and say, like, I learned this thing and I'm clear about it. Cause you know, there's, I think it's the Einstein quote. That's like, if you, you know, if you can't explain it, you don't really understand it. And I wanted people to be able to like explain it and articulate clearly what is going on, how they feel about it, why they're challenging, whatever it might be, and, you know, can do so intelligently. Whereas if you go pick up Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, or you go, or Stamped from the Beginning, which was, I mean, both incredible books, but just really require that you have some kind of foundational understanding. Otherwise, like, they feel like, I mean, it's like eating porridge, like, you know, with no flavor. You're like, I don't know what I just had. I know it was impactful and I know it was probably good for me, but I'm not real sure what to do. And so that's 
who I was thinking about was that person that like goes and gets that thinking that they're going to get like this robust knowledge and they are, but like they just don't even have like the tools to digest it. She's not lying. The book is an easy read, not because it's an easy topic, but because of how she structured it. Oh my gosh. I love A, that you start with the history. So helpful. Yeah. And B, yeah. the little notes, like what is xenophobia? Blah, 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 blah. Like what is white adjacent mean? Blah, blah, blah. Like so, so helpful, I think, especially because, yeah. you know, when you read like books that are more academic, it takes extra energy for your brain to be like, what was xenophobia again? I need to like think about that before I move on. This way you just lay yes. it out and you can like move forward. So yes, digestible, yes. like you said. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. That was my goal. I tried to make it something where it's like, if you don't work in this space, I think a lot of books that are written like for people to learn from, to your point, use a lot of language that like is common to the industry, but it's not common to like regular folks. So like you might have heard of allyship, you might have heard of advocacy, but like, do you really know what intersectionality is? Like, do you actually know what colorism looks like? You know, do you know what xenophobia is? Do you know why people say Latinx? Like, you know, like it's things like, that that I wanted people to be able to get as they were going through learning like the strategies. Yeah, right. I did Rachel Cargill's hashtag do the work yeah. with a group of people. And there was two guys from India that had been in the States for a relatively short period of time, like five years. And they were just like, please help me understand United States history. Like what the happened here we yes. don't understand this at all yes, yes. So that's really why i loved that you kind of laid out the very basic history timeline yeah particularly for black folks and i think i even tried to say like by the way there are other identities with other really complex histories here that we're not going to cover <laughs> like this is not by any means intended to be all-encompassing but with 2020 the book came out in 2020 with that being a year of racial reckoning with the murder of George Floyd and then Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And I mean, you know, the, there's unfortunately a long list of names. I thought it was really important that because we're talking about allyship as it relates to black identity, let's get really clear about why it's so centered around black identity. Why are we hearing about protests? Why are we hearing all of a sudden about systemic and systematic racism? Like from politicians like why is this a subject and so i wanted to make sure that the book opened with grounding where you were like oh i didn't know that this was like this i didn't i i've heard of martin luther king i've heard of the civil rights act i've heard of but like i want people to understand that like no this was like 56 years ago like this wasn't 100 years ago this is last week in context of like a lifetime right and so these things that folks are you know frustrated with are like alive and well and present as you would expect anything i mean we've got folks that are alive you know right. that, that are that crazy. age and so yeah. yeah it's super accessible and so i wanted to like frame that so it didn't feel like okay all the black folks are going off on some old history stuff again and it's like no 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 i mean it's some stuff their parents were like living through you know right. and so totally. And, you know, when I say that, like, yeah, 56 years ago, by the way, I am 40. People are like, oh, well, that's a little different. Yes. And so now open your ears and, you know, let's learn the things. And so I, I positioned it that way on purpose because kind of to get people to feel like, oh, maybe I do need to pay attention to this. The very high level timeline she's referring to is 246 years of American slavery, 
89 years of segregation, and only 66 years in our post-segregation era. As she mentioned, the history is just to set up and explain what was and is happening around a racial reckoning. So with that understanding, readers can more easily jump into actionable tools. I asked Amber to please share more of her allyship tools. Her first was using gender-inclusive language, not guys, and the second goes a long way. Apologize. Gender-inclusive language, you know, yes. figure out what you are, how you're doing that. And sometimes it's not even a term like that. Sometimes it's that you call everyone that is in Congress a congressman when we have Congress people. And so thinking about your gendered language. And then the other one I always share is apologies, mostly because nobody's good at them. Everybody is bad at apologies. We can just hop on out to, you know, Al Gore's internet and just pop into the search bar and find <laughs> some company that has made some terrible mistakes, some really well-known human who has made some terrible mistake and has apologized for it poorly, poorly. And it's actively being dragged on the Twitter right now. And so, so apologies. Second thing, here's what an apology sounds like. I apologize for, moving forward, I will. I apologize for mispronouncing your name. Moving forward, I'll make sure to say it correctly. That is an apology. There's a lot to be said about apologies in the book. I explain all kinds of things, even if you're one of those folks who's like, I think I apologize too much. I say I'm sorry all the time. Right. But read the book. It gives you some explicit direction around like why apologies are important, how to do them well, why it's not a diminishment of your identity, why it really can help you connect with others. Um, but that's probably the, the second tip I would recommend is like, give meaningful apologies. You make a mistake say what you apologize for, and then literally just say what you're going to do going forward. Because that's what you want. When someone does something to you, you're like, I want you to know you broke it. And I want you to tell me how you're going to be better going forward. I asked Amber about another tool, allowing space for imperfection, because we're all going to make mistakes. In her book, she makes a differentiation between imperfection and something that's malicious or deliberate. So I was wondering which she sees more of in the corporate environment. Option A versus malicious and deliberate. Yes. Yeah, most people don't know that they're being terrible people. Um, I mean, you can take a light pole and figure that out. Yeah. You know, like, we all do you think you're a terrible amazing. person? <laughs> Absolutely, right? We're all like, I'm an ally. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. Let's, mm -hmm. let's pressure test that. You know, it's unlikely that you are deliberately being a jerk, but people are. And, you know, we get caught up in our own egos or understandings or limited points of view and perspective. And like we operate and that's it. And so it does make a difference when you want grace, because I can give grace a lot easier for someone that doesn't know than for someone who is actively, purposefully trying to harm someone. And so it's always a little bit disturbing for me when you have these very public videos, like this one that was relatively recently where the young woman accused the little boy of taking her iPhone in the hotel. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, did you I did. That was Wasn't it just so bonkers? Like so she was just, bonkers. it was way so much over the top. I mean, she was, you know, basically trying to jump all over this kid about a phone that she left in a car, actually. Like she, she didn't even, you know, this little boy didn't even take, but... It felt incredibly like 
racist because, you know, here this little black kid is and you're like launching your person at him and trying to like tackle him over a phone <laughs> and trying to say that his phone is your phone. Like it was OK, yeah. it was a lot. <laughs> I think that when I see something like that, like you are actively being malicious. Yeah, you are actively doing harm whatever, for whatever your motivation is. You are actively trying to harm someone else. And so it is hard for someone to say, well, I mean, you know, she was unsafe and she wasn't okay. Or she, you know, maybe she just, went, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any grace for that. You are a bad human. You were being <laughs> one at that moment. Right. And so I, it's hard to grant grace for that, but it's a lot easier when you do something that is actually a accident um, that is not purposeful. Like, I mispronounced your name, you know, or even if it's something that's more severe where, you know, maybe I um, in some way accuse you of something, but I don't approach you as though I need to like fight you about it and demean your character. And I'm like pulling out all of my bias to like make you sound and feel like a horrible person because I think that maybe you've done this thing. And so we have to be really mindful about wanting grace because I think there are a lot of people who really want grace, who do not exhibit the kind of behavior that to me creates an environment where you get granted grace. And then what happens is you go act the fool and you want to go apologize for it. And everybody's like, but you did it on purpose. So nobody right. really wants to forgive you. Not to mention your apology is bad. <laughs> and so right. now you're wondering why you lost your job, you lost your dog, you lost, you know, you, you're single, you can't live in the city anymore. And you're like, oh my God, my life is ruined. Well, I don't like the idea of mobs and I don't appreciate like that outcome. I also think that the reason it happens is because you, along the way, continued versus getting to the place where you're like, ooh, I broke it. I right. apologize. Right. Here's what I'm going to do going forward. So yeah, you people don't, don't get canceled for nothing. The concept of intent versus impact, like mm -hmm. that was actually, I had to take a mental journey to like fully understand that. And I mean, like a few years worth of processing. I don't yeah. just mean like picked up a book and figured it out that like, it doesn't matter how nice you think you are and how nice you're trying to be and how you didn't mean something to come across that way. Like none nope. of that matters. It's all about nope. what is the impact of what you did? Yeah. And the sooner you can own it, the easier it'll be for you. The less likely it's going to end up being some crazy viral video situation the sooner you can own it, which is really, I think, what most people are like terrified of, like, oh my gosh, what happens if like the internet finds out? <laughs> and I'm like, just as an example, huge client, I was on their platform, hundreds of thousands of followers. I mean, probably a million, I don't know. I can't think off the top of my head exactly, but like very large, well-known retailer. I was on their platform on Instagram Live and I was giving an example about how you have a tough conversation over the holidays about whatever, whether it's a racial issue or some other form of discrimination. Um, how do you have those tough conversations because people get together for the holidays or you don't and you do this virtually, whatever. You, the question was asked of me like, well, what do you do You know, when you have to have a tough conversation? It's like your grandmother. And I'm like, well, sometimes, you know, you and grandma gotta have powwow. And I was like, Arr! not the right language, right? I immediately caught it and I was like, wait, let me correct that language. I should not have said that. 
it's not because it's a slur. It is just not the appropriate use of the term. Um, so the appropriate thing that I should have said is this. So I apologize for saying that. And going forward, I'll be more mindful of my language. And then I continued on with the story. And the gentleman I was talking to on Instagram Live, who was, you know, my moderator interview or whatever, he was like, wait, let's go back. <laughs> like, how did you do that? Like, you just like slipped in the apology and like kept going. And I'm like, right, because it doesn't have to be a thing if you own it. Like, if you own it. And he was like, but like, how did you do that? And I said, well, the first thing is like, I'm not scared of y'all. Like, people are gonna make mistakes. I'm gonna make mistakes. I do this for a living. I make mistakes all the time, but I know how to apologize for them. That is where you get your grace. You don't get it by just saying, oh yeah, I said it. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Why are y'all making it or something? No, you apologize, you own it, you move on. And so I try to teach people from that place. Like I can't tell you every microaggression. You can go somewhere else in the world where I don't know what any of the microaggressions are, but I can tell you how to apologize for it. I can tell you how to navigate the conversation. And so that's kind of the way I try to approach the work in general is giving people the tools to navigate when you mess up, because it's going to happen, whether you, regardless of your intent, what do you do afterwards? Yeah, that's such a good example. I love the like catching it in the moment and shifting right then because it was like you fixed it. I mean, to the best of your ability right then. Yeah. And then you also offered an example of like, here's how to do it. This is going to happen. Change it. Yeah. Yes. That's great. Yeah, it's super important. And I think that's also part of why I stay employed is that I live the things that I talk about. So I tell people like, you can apologize, you can make mistakes, you can have, you know, things you don't know, get you in a bind and still get out and live to see another day. And I live my life that way. I make those mistakes. I, you know, I show up and stand up when I make, you know, an error and show you what it looks like to correct it. And so I think that level of candor is unusual in teachers. You know, I think that a lot, of, particularly in corporate environments, you know, we try, you know, it's very performative, you know, for anybody who's listening, like, you know how corporate is. Like you go in, you put your little corporate identity on, you wear your little corporate outfits, you know, you behave a corporate way and whatever the culture tolerates is amplified. And what I try to do is like bring some humanity to that where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's nice. You have this corporate identity and corporate outfit and corporate way of being and all those things. But like, what happens when you mess up? Do you know what to do when you mess up? Do you know what to do? when people are really concerned about this particular kind of issue that could be discriminatory against a whole bunch of folks, like how are you bringing that stuff along? Because like, those are not things you can just corporate away. I mean, people might still be putting on their little corporate outfits and not talking about it directly, but it's happening. And it can cause you to lose employees and cause you to lose customers and cause you to lose money. And so I try to create an environment where people know how to like address those things without being in a situation that it's like, oh, I'm in my corporate outfit, I can't do it. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. Okay, we're going to apologize quickly and well. We're going to consider giving grace for imperfections. And we're going to try to listen in a way that makes the other person feel heard. Yes, I ask people to be a, a confident listener. I love that. And I'm sure I'm not going to summarize it correctly, but there was something about with what my takeaway was uh, in translating Amber was like, shh, like yes. be confident in your listening just as you would be confident in your sharing. And I'm like, oh, I'm very confident in my sharing. Yes. So now translate yes. that into being quiet. <laughs> 
Yes, it is exactly that. Like it's hard. That's hard all around. (laughs) Yeah. Confident listening is, um, we connect with people with our personal experiences. And so it's natural when you're hearing something and you're like, you're, I mean, you're bursting at the seams to be like, oh my God, let me tell you this thing, you know, cause you want to say like, I get it. And I want you to know, I get it. And I want you to get it. And like, when someone needs to be heard, that just doesn't work. You have to bring your listening to the same level that you want to share like that. And you have to lean in and say, okay, this person is sharing something that is deeply impactful for them. And if I want them to know I care, the best way I can show that is to just be quiet and make eye contact and nod my head and throw in a, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) I understand. Wow. That's so impactful. Thank you for telling me, right? Like that's confident listening. And we, we're, a lot of us are bad at it. I have moments where I'm bad at it because you, again, your instinct is to like, want to give your peace so I can connect my peace with your peace, you know, but that's not, it doesn't help people feel heard. Um, And depending on what the subject matter is, you can really silence someone. They'll never tell you anything else. And so I do encourage people, particularly those who are trying to create inclusive spaces to like, to to use your words, shh, (laughs) like zip it, (laughs) give it a little minute. Let Let the story breathe. So there's a couple takeaways for you. But what about the women of when? What about when you're working in a bro culture? Does Amber have advice for how to handle that? Yeah, you know, so here's the thing about that. Any troubled culture, any problem uh, riddled culture, bro culture, uh, as you said, or um, if it's even if it's something else, some other form of oppression. The recommendation that I have is bring in first a professional that you can trust and be very honest about it. I think that when you do that, you put yourself in a position to have some language that you might not otherwise have introduced to that environment. So it's a lot harder when we're all living in the the umbrella of our culture for me to chime up and say, you know, I think we might be discriminating against women because people are like, what do you mean? We're all in the culture here. You're not, you're a dissenter. You're not participating, right? That's what happens. And so when you invite someone else in and if you do it in the right way and meaningfully, that means they are connected to your senior leadership, including HR, then it invites some conversation to happen. It invites people to say like, well, we just went through this session. And in that session, we talked about this because if this is what you brought in here for us to have a meeting about, have a training about, clearly you want to be aware if we're doing something counter to that. And so now all of a sudden you have the ability to kind of percolate some of the dialogue that would otherwise not have made its way into that organization without being seen as like a problem. So I always recommend that. Like if you're in that situation and you're a a person of influence or have the ability to affect a person of influence's decisions around this topic, do that. Get someone in that can open the, you know, the dialogue at least so that like now it's not like, oh, you're the one dissenter. The second thing that I recommend is you expect to be uncomfortable because change doesn't happen without it. And so you have to be okay 
being the voice that says, so, you know, that training we, we went through last week that was like about how patriarchy is oppressive and can handicap women having the opportunity to grow in an organization. I'm a bit concerned about how that might be coming to life in my team. And I want to be able to talk about it, especially since we've had this session now. So can we get that dialogue going? And the thing that happens, unfortunately, a lot of times is that no one's willing to do that. No one's willing to say the hard stuff. No one's willing to put their character or identity or discomfort on the line to do that. But it has to happen. And so when I think back to my corporate experience, you know, my time at Walmart, I spoke up a lot. Did it influence and have impact on the way I experienced growth opportunities at that organization? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Can I prove it? Not entirely, particularly not now because I've signed an agreement <laughs> about <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> talking about certain stuff. But um, yeah, definitely there were times where I spoke up and I am sure that I had some impact and blowback because I was that person, but it was worth it to me. And let me tell you why it was worth it. It was worth it because you might not fix it with me, but you will not forget it. And the next person might have it a bit easier. And when I think about the work that I do, I am not working on a world that is free from oppression in my lifetime. I am not working on a world that will not have patriarchy and racism and sexism and all of those things in my lifetime. I am working on a world that will not have those things at some point. And if I don't do my part right now, it won't ever happen. And so sometimes, we have to get comfortable with the idea that the liberation isn't for us, but we still have an obligation to help get it there. And I understand that that's difficult for people because they're not communal and they're just all out for what they get. But like the world ain't going to work for your your lineage, you know, if you are not thoughtful about the part you can play today. And so for me, it's always worth it to push back, to challenge, to ask the tough questions, to be seen as trouble, to be, you know, whatever judgment or criticism comes. It's always worth it because I know that you and I might have a big old blowout about it. But the next time that you have a little black girl from Detroit reporting to you, you're going to say, mm, let me think twice about the way I approached this because I had some feedback last time and I don't want to have that. I want to do better than I did before. And so that matters enough for me. That makes it worth it to me. And so when companies are in that place, when women or other identities are in an oppressed state in an organization, those are the two biggest things that I think have to happen. One, you've got to have somebody come in and get that language in there because you can't bring it in yourself. And then two, you've got to be prepared to be brave and say what needs to be said. And, and you can't, even though I loved the win story and I loved all of the, the just the fantastic branding. Okay, I loved it. Okay. <laughs> In the win story that she's referring to, a letter calling out the lack of women on the company's leadership team was left on desks overnight. It did spark something, but the letter to this day was anonymous. I also know that like the secrecy around it kind of almost handicapped it. There had to be someone that would have said something. It would have made a really huge difference and potentially it would have still cost some people some jobs. But as we well know, that still happened anyway. 
And that's the hard part. Like you got to be willing to sacrifice it. Let me just go ahead on. I got to sacrifice it. And that's the part that I think is the hardest for most people. And I think I talk about that in the book. Like it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's I mean, like let go of the idea that you are owed comfort. You're not. Most of the folks listening to this podcast have survived 2020. Were you comfortable? Likely the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) So that means you can do it. So that would be my biggest recommendation is be willing to get uncomfortable. Expect it. And it's worth it. It's totally worth it. (laughs) It's hard. It's like being honest in a breakup. You know how people like try to set people up to be like, I'm gonna make him break up with me. (laughs) Instead of being like, listen, you are a terrible human. I am unhappy and this is over. (laughs) Oh, so true. We try to like make them do it. And that's kind of what happens. Like, it's the same thing in corporations. They're like, oh, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you do it. It never works, though. No. We went down a bit of a rabbit hole about poor corporate behavior, not just how employees are treated in a company, but all those little product and marketing errors that alienate people of color. But what she said about Black History Month is an important reorientation. Here she is. That's also why as we roll into Black History Month, you know, I have been saying to people like, I need your experience and understanding of Black History Month to not be Martin Luther King. I need it to, I mean, the man should be celebrated champion. First of all, the stories you tell about him are all the way wrong. He was not this kind, warm, loving Mahatma Gandhi identity. Like the man was about that life. Okay. That's why he was arrested <laughs> a lot. Like, you know, there was a lot happening, you know, and I know y'all want to paint this peaceful protest theory because we talk about him all the time and it's going to help black people be more docile, but that's wrong. Also though, I always tell people like black history is happening right now. George Floyd is black history. Barack Obama was also black history. Like what's happening right now today around this whole, there's a whole ass executive order saying you can't do diversity training. That shit's black history. The fact that that has been rescinded by the new president, that's black history. Like stop painting the picture that black history is some shit from like a long ass time ago. It's right now. We ain't got to have no more dreams. What we need to do is execute. We were talking about a story involving stereotyping and actions that led to an apology. The story is not worth your time, but she's going to make one thing clear. Ciao. Miss me. I'm good. I don't want that. And then what's the addiction to like black people and fried chicken? I'm like, we like chicken, but so do white people. Damn. Everybody likes fried chicken, okay? Except vegans, but everybody else. Yo, fried chicken is bomb. So I'm like, what is this obsession with black? Don't get me wrong. Black people do love chicken, but so do white people. (laughs) Why is this a thing? As I'm sure you've heard and are well aware, brands make lots of mistakes. So how does this happen? There was like literally five black women that worked there. Like the the problem is like not having, it's the D part. (laughs) You don't have the diversity. You have nobody looking at this shit. You have nobody speaking up and it does happen. Because, and they're also scared if they wanted to. Well, of course, because they're just like, hi, I'm one person that has to say something. And I have no safety. I'm also in the Bay area where it ain't the easiest to get a damn job. 
as a black person, particularly. Now, I will say this. I do think there are a lot of like cultural nuance things that sometimes are difficult. But like black people fried chicken is a pretty common one. Like you kind of should know that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Basic level. That's kind of basic. Like you literally don't have no black friends. Like at all. Nowhere. Because even the black friends that don't have other black friends know <laughs> that you don't do black people fried chicken. Like that's a really common, <laughs> this is a racial stereotype. Let us not do that. Like, but I felt the same way with the whole Gucci thing with the big old lips. Oh, the sweater, right? Yes. The sweater. Yes. Aren't they from France or something? Like maybe they don't. They have blackface in France. <laughs> like, they have blackface around the globe. That ain't no American shit. That's everywhere. People know what that is. I was like, what the hell is happening here? Now, there are occasions where things are like, uh, I can kind of see how that slid. Like, there was an incident with, I think it was Ralph Lauren, where they used like some fraternity and sorority logo stuff in their designs. But it was also black designers that did it. They were just trying to amp up their damn shit. What? And so it was like, oh, you can't use this. It's disrespectful. Okay, that, I was like, eh, I can see how that can happen. You know what I'm saying? But like anything fried chicken and watermelon and like Sambo or like blackface, that shit seems really straightforward to me. <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I mean, yeah. how can you help me understand how you didn't catch this? Because <laughs> it seems like somebody should have saw it. So... <laughs> I mean, but there are still those uh, folks in the world, I guess, that, that say they don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, this, it's yeah. a very, so, that, so days like that and circumstances like that are very, like, it's hard to be a Black person. Like, I'm very, like, damn, seriously? And that's the consequence of those, quote, small design mistakes. How they happen, well, there's some cultural nuance and there are some folks who say that they don't know better. So anyone who does know has to speak up. You should absolutely pick up Amber Cabral's book, Allies and Advocates, to learn more about what you can do. I would love for you to go buy it. It's 22 bucks. It's often on sale on Amazon. But yeah, go buy a copy because, you know, publishers want you to sell the book that you write so that, you know, they can convince you to write another one because writing a book is a really crazy thing. So like it's selling plays a huge part in you doing it again. So there are also some fun resources if you decide that you want like the activities and all that stuff that will be available too if you yeah, want to follow up on that. Is, is there a discussion guide thing you can do? with the There is. Club? There's a book club discussion guide. There's also questions in the book, by the way. And so you can always use those. There's some fun little stuff that you can I'll go and download. Yeah. So definitely go get it. And then you can go get your goodies to go with it. My bonuses. Your bonuses. <laughs> That's what they're called too, actually. I think they are called bonuses. <laughs> yeah. Amber has actually released a second book already. It's called Say More About That and provides techniques to say what you need to in a way that will be heard as respectful, but also firm. It includes stuff like confidence, body language, and tone, with scripts for tough or awkward conversations when you're scared or even angry. So add that one to your list.
The last episode of the Win series was called You Win Some, You Lose Some, because there was a lot of battles lost in that fight. But fixing systems of oppression takes a long time. It really struck me when Amber said that the liberation isn't for us, it's for those who come after us. So next time you give feedback or stand up and say something's not right and it's not received well, or there's career consequences for you, picture that next young woman early in her career, shining eyes, hungry mind, eager to make her impact on the world. And remember, it's worth it for her. So maybe we can't fix everything, but there is one place Amber says we can fix it. But as a woman, I'm like, yes, patriarchy. That shit's awful. And yeah. But it can it can be dismantled in the workplace. Now in the world, I don't know about the world. Right. But the workplace. One thing yes. at a time, right? Right. One thing at a Each time. Each of us just bites off what we can chew, goes at that. And at piece. some point, <laughs> far in the future. <laughs> I'd like to begin with a fact. Just perceived in their own privilege that they can't see hats around peanuts. business.